0: Thank you. My name is Sharon and I am an alcoholic. Hi, Sharon. And I don't know if you're going to hear a classy story or not. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Um, <laughs> I, um, alcoholics is nice. You can really clean it up. It's really great. I uh, was uh, speaking at this little meeting in Malibu up at this retreat center. It was kind of a mellow meeting. And I'm by a fireplace and it was a um, participation and a topic. And I if this guy walked in late and he stood in the back and his arms were folded, and he had his hat on and then he said, well, I'll come on in. You know, and he graced us with his presence, and uh, came in and sat down and listened, and, and after the meeting he came up to me and he said, I have an amends to make to you, and I thought, oh boy, I don't remember this guy at all, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this meeting of alcoholics, and I thought, what does that Beverly Hills housewife have to tell me, you know, and uh, so listen, you will not think I am a Beverly Hills housewife after I'm through, but I can clean it up, see, that's the beauty of it, I can walk out there with the best of them on the sunny side of the street, and I have no idea what my head is saying. Thank God, because <laughs> I still have a very loud alcoholic head. You know, the book talks a lot about how alcoholism centers in the mind, and boy, oh, boy, it does. Because uh, I physically have been sober for over 22 and a half years, so physically I'm sober. You know, my body's sober, but my mind is still very active in alcoholism, so I need you together. You know, we can do it. Alone, I can't. I can sit in my room and read my big book and and, you know, have a good time, but... There's something that happens when two or three are gathered together. So I'm glad we're all together this week, and I'm I'm honored to be in the town of the Pulitzer Prize. You know, when people find out, <laughs> hey, it beats the floods and the you know the other stuff, right? Uh, I mean, when people find out I was going, they were all you know, oh, oh and so it's like it's great. I'm really proud of you and happy for you. And and uh, it couldn't you can't say no to a guy named Oli, you know? And uh, <laughs> sounds like a beer I used to drink or something. <laughs> And then you know, he gave me Carrie and Jim, and it just couldn't have been more fun. I mean, we've just had a lot of fun, and uh, it's just beginning, and that's the joy of it. Is is alcoholic nervous? I mean, I got up early, I got on the plane, I changed my seat. I'm sitting down next to this really nice couple, and we start talking, and you know, and and uh, we talked a little bit, and and then you know, we slept a little bit, and then we talked a little bit more. and, and he kept throwing in these little phrases. So finally I took my medallion out of my wallet and showed it to him and he had fourteen years, you know. And so it's like, Oh good, we had a meeting on the plane, you know, and um it's it's uh, <laughs> you just you just never know. It's just been um a, a really nice twenty four hours so far. I mean that's and that's the joy of it. Alcoholics Anonymous um <sighs> offers me a day of peace and freedom and growth and uh Power that is just an amazing thing that I never thought I would want this much life um, happening on a day day at a time basis and and I'm just so pleased and excited to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean we are the lucky ones. Um, I, I don't I read about this guy named Matt Talbot who years ago lived in Ireland and I'm sure somebody will correct me if I'm wrong but Um, because we do that to each other. (laughs) Lovingly, of course. (laughs) And he was an alcoholic uh, monk. And uh, this was way before we had Alcoholics Anonymous. And when he would feel this obsession come upon him, he would have someone chained to this tree. He had this favorite tree. He would get chained to the tree. And then when he would say, okay, until I'm through frothing at the mouth, days later, they would unchain him. And and uh, I mean, he died with chains that his body had practically, you know, absorbed in his. And and that was, I mean, this is the easier, softer way. You know, coming into Alcoholics Anonymous and and uh, picking up a newcomer and saying yes to a request and and saying a few prayers once in a while and uh, you know making some amends and trying to live the good life. Uh, we could all be chained to the tree out there with the snow coming, you know, and that. <laughs> That would be quite a sight. So um, I'm just really grateful that I live in the time and space of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh It's it's just a, it's such a precious, precious gift. And, you know, we are the lucky ones. And I used to hear this speaker named Norm Alpe used to speak a lot in, in the Los Angeles area. And I was just, oh, he would fire me up. And he used to talk about seconds and inches. And it's like, whoa, yeah. He says just by seconds and inches that you are lucky to be here. You know, a lot of people, stones throw from this meeting may need Alcoholics Anonymous, may never know the inside of an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, may never have a chance to come sit in a chair, hear Chapter 5, know they're not alone, and, um, you know, judge the coffee, judge the speaker, whatever we do, but, you know, have the knowledge that there there is a way to go for his disease or her disease. And we are really the lucky ones, and it's just by seconds and inches. We've all got those places in our life where we ended up here instead of whatever the next answer was. So I, I am proud to be with the lucky ones tonight in Grand Forks. It's it's a privilege to be with you. I am I grew up in Iowa. <laughs> my first resentment, but um <laughs> yeah, it was very, very close to to this kind of community and sense of community, so I feel very at home here. But I fought that for a long time and I am the only alcoholic in my family. I keep waiting for somebody, some you know, somewhere to fess up or, you know, come out of the closet or whatever their thing is, you know, but I'm it, so we're really glad we know what's wrong with me now. <laughs> My parents wondered for a long time if she'd just meet a nice guy or get off those drugs, cause it, you know, it was the sixties. It wasn't just say no, it was just say thanks. You know, we did a lot of, <laughs> we had a lot of fun with our alcohol and, but the first time I really got drunk, it, it, it did something for me. It, it, it empowered me. I had a spiritual dilemma going and that, it was a spiritual tool. From that moment on, I mean, I sat on the—it was my neighbor's car, and I was with the neighborhood boys, and they just kind of drugged me along. And I was a 13-year-old little flat-chested, you know, tag-along. And we're out there on an Iowa country road, and they was pulling up there having old woodsy—we used to call them. 'em—and you know, and Canadian Club and Schlitz beer changed my life, I tell you. Marilyn Monroe slid off the top of that car, you know, that night, and I—my uh, little bump stood right up there. I stood right up there. I just. <laughs> You know, I drove cars, I danced, I told jokes, I chug a contests contest with the boys. I arrived, and the next day, being a good, nice little Catholic family, we went off to Mass, and I was hungover, and I, I felt bad. But I couldn't wait to do it again, because I remembered the magic of alcohol. It transformed my insides. I have a very loud head. It was always very loud, and we all got drunk. I mean we got down to one big voice saying, oh, That's party. I mean we were all in unison and that's what alcohol did for me. It got me real focused. And um so when you find something that good you just go for it. And I had really good grades and I I had the smoke screen going, I started leading a double life very early. Very early. I started manipulating very early. I uh, stealed your booze, I watered down your booze, I made it happen, I kept the party going, I blacked out, I had hangovers. It didn't matter. Um I was um still in and out of that confessional in 30 seconds, because it was a small town, and if you're in there longer than 30 seconds, you're a bad girl, so I had this image I had to keep up, and, you know, I knew God would understand, you know, and um, I had, I really wanted to be a nun at one time, I had aspirations, you know, and I had dreams, she's laughing, I wanted to be, she's laughing I mean, <laughs> she hasn't even heard me yet, she's laughing that I wanted to be a nun, but, you know, I guess what I wanted to do was have a purpose, I really wanted to have a purpose, and I wanted to be a United Nations translator. I mean, I had such big goals. So I'm the kind of person that I don't go from A to B to C to D, follow the steps to get to my goal. I want to go jumping right to Z. And if I can't do that, oh, who's going to want to eat all, you know, I don't want to do that anyway. I didn't know how to live life. I was missing the day in school they gave up the rules of life. I just didn't have it. And see, I have something called pride, <laughs> so I don't ask questions. I, I pretend like I know everything, and I'm a real good people pleaser. I'm a real good manipulator. I'm a real good game player, and I have good instincts with that kind of stuff. So I was able to fit in and follow along and be with some really bright people in my life and not learn a thing because I never asked a question. I just act like I knew what they were talking about. You know, once in a while, throw out, oh, yeah, you know, or something. And uh, I used to sit with Columbia University with the top of the top philosophy students, and, you know, I was just... uh you know, they had good hash and good wine, so that's why I was there, but you know, I could have learned a lot, but I, I didn't. I didn't ask any questions, and, and it followed me into Alcoholics Anonymous, too, and this is a third edition big book, Um, and there's a story on page, there's, uh, Dr. Paul has a story in here, and on page 449, it's something called acceptance, surrender, and that kind of stuff, and I had gotten sober in 75, so I have the second edition big book, well, the third edition, I think, came out maybe 76 or 77. But people would tell me, I'll go home and read page 449. You know, you'll feel better. So I go home and I read my second edition big book, which was a story called Joe's Woes. And there's really nothing on it. I mean, I've looked on that page many times, and I would read it and go, okay, I'm missing something here. And I put it down. I read it again. And I wouldn't tell anybody, I don't get what I'm supposed to get on that page. Will you help me, please, you know? So finally, when I got a third edition big book, I, you know, I learned a lesson. I just laughed out loud. I mean, it's like ask questions if you're new. If you're new, ask a lot of questions. Nobody expects, nobody wants you. Believe me, we don't want you to know anything, you know. Just ask a lot of questions. But I had this pride going in my life, and I didn't ask questions. And I, after a while, I began to believe my own press. You know, after a while, I began to believe I was doing okay, and alcohol fortified it, fortified it, um, went off to college because you did that in my family. You got an education. And as I said, it was the 60s, and I was looking for truth, and there was a lot going on. And pretty soon, the sorority clothes went by the wayside. Pretty soon, I caught my man I was going to marry with another woman, and I wasn't very understanding. And um, I remember he I got drunk, and I went down to confront him. And um, he twisted my arm because I was swinging at him um, and put me on the floor so I calmed down. And I thought, no man is ever going to treat me like that ever again. and. As I tell you my story with alcoholism, where it took me with that, you know, I grew up in a family. My parents are married, this July will be 57 years, God willing. You know, they live in the same house I grew up in. I come from stability. I come from love. I come from from care. But um, alcoholism took all of that from me, and I gave pieces of my soul and my life freely for alcohol. Um, I began taking geographics. My father and I, had this big, uh, confrontation. I, I would occasionally wake them up in the middle of the night with my new truth I had found, um, drive in from the University of Iowa home and wake them up and knock on the door and the night I changed my name. That was a good one. At two in the morning I got them up and we we're sitting at the kitchen table and, I mean, they think I'm probably married or something. They don't know why I have to wake them up. I have this thing I have to tell them and I told them I changed my name to Cher. And, um, <laughs> and I said it's not like Sonny Cher. It's S-H-A-R-E. Because I share. You know my dad looked at what I brought home that night that I was sharing with though so with the eyes spinning in his head and the dirty long hair and the no shoes on his feet and he was real happy, I'll tell you. And you know, I was beginning to um to take a lot of art classes and uh I was drinking at Joe's place, I had a fake ID, um I was uh if there was a protest rally I was there um because uh you give me a, a sign, some wine and some uppers and I'm real loud. And um, they just seemed to be having a lot of fun. And one day my dad saw me on the, the news, the local news, and we had a talk. And then I tried to commit suicide because that was my answer. And the priest came down with my dad to talk to me about that. And we got drunk. The priest and I got real drunk that night. And <laughs> my father sent me to a psychiatrist. They tried to help me. They had no idea that I was a budding alcoholic. You know, if Sharon could just meet some nice guy and get off those drugs. They had no idea that I was a budding alcoholic. And so after two years of college, I had this huge fight with my father, and that was it. You know, I told my dad exactly how I felt about him, his generation, how he lived his life, and I told him what I was doing with my life, exactly what I was doing with my life. I did not mince my words, and I, I broke my dad's heart. And... um. You know, I was the one, I was, there's three girls and a boy, and I'm the middle, I'm, I walk into a room with my fists up, you know, I'm the middle child, and uh, I don't do that anymore. I put them at my side, but I, I, I'm i competitive, and I need to prove myself, and 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 I need to take a stand, and, um, you know, my dad played an accordion, so I played an accordion so that I could, you know, play my accordion with my father, and um, I'll tell you, that wasn't much fun sitting on those hay wagons as we were having the with those red dresses and those petticoats and my big titano accordion and hung over in this accordion band on a hay wagon going through the town because of the centennial parade. And they're the boys I was with the night before and I have to move so they don't see me looking like <laughs> little Miss Accordion there on the, the hay wagon. And, oh, but, you know, I wanted to please my father, you know, and I drew pictures and I painted pictures and I was a, an art major and I had a lot of talent and that brought a lot of joy to my father. And, and, you know, I broke his heart, and I ended up with my bags packed, and I was in New York, and I didn't know I was taking Geographics. I didn't know that's what I was going to do with my life. Yeah. I thought, a fresh start, you know, it's a new place, and and I was always from Wisconsin. I was never from Iowa, you know, because my accent gave me away, but, you know, Wisconsin had cheese. Iowa had pigs. I felt like a pig. I couldn't be from Iowa. I mean, it's just, I was, I was beginning to kind of cut off who I was just because I was never enough. I was never enough. I had to have this fantasy going and and uh, I ended up in New York and um you know No Malpe also used to tell me why I mean that's a piece of truth I I I took a lot of hits of, you know what to look for truth with all my my booze cuz I just I had to find it and when I I find it but I forget where I left it so I, I never found truth until I came to AA but you know I I uh, No Melody used to talk about the reason the grass was greener you know it was like I came to AA and I heard truth you know, he said it's because the other guy took care of his lawn. It was like, oh, yeah, you yeah, know, it made sense to me. I I wanted to sit on your lawn. I wanted to go, you know, put my fingers through your dichondra because you've worked for it, you know, and you've worked hard at it. But I just want to sit and enjoy it because mine is barren. I am barren. I am barren inside. I am not able to draw anymore. I went back to college. I couldn't draw anymore. There was no more talent left, and I don't know if I was sitting in the West End bar and, Upper Manhattan, uh, and the bartender was said, gee, if you drink like this tonight and act like this, you're not going to draw another picture for 25 years. You're not going to want to paint another picture. You're going to be frustrated and not be able to paint another picture for 25 years. That part of you that makes you special is going to go away. I'd say double it and serve me. Because alcohol was more powerful than what I was or what I thought that I needed to have to live in life. Uh, alcohol was my answer. Um when I couldn't draw anymore or paint anymore, I was very depressed. I had another fight with my father and I ended up in Colorado. And you know, and I don't know if I would have been sitting at the Mountain Man Bar in near Aspen, Colorado, and the bartender would have said, you know, if you act like this tonight and drink like this tonight, <laughs> your dignity is gone. And I would have said, you know, double it. Buy him one too. You know, I didn't know I was married, sorry. You know, I just uh you know, I, I just acted badly and um I met Bob Dylan, and I came to California. And um, anyway, I think it was Bob Dylan. Um, (laughs) Sang like Bob Dylan. I uh, ended up living in the commune. Um, I didn't have two quarters to rub together, but I was free. Uh, I would work for my wine at this uh, little festival, and I'd drink wine and sell this guy's... He was a speed freak. He'd be in the back painting these pictures really fast, and I... Be drinking my wine, I have my bells on my ankles, and I'd be meditating and flowers in my hair, and people would come up and buy and I'd be real mellow and they'd buy these little speed freak pictures for me and and I was happy. I mean I I was free. Um I turned twenty one dancing with the Krishna's, they wanted me. You know, I had been to the Pentecostals, they wanted me. I had been almost dunked by the Jesus Freaks in Laguna, they wanted me. Um you know, I had this hole in my psyche or something, they just spot me. You know how I'd walk into a room, and the sickest person would always find me. I mean, it's just like, how do they do it, you know? And, and I'd be walking down the street, and these people would just light up when they saw me. And, and, you know, they had something. I knew I was missing something that they had. They had a sense of purpose. They had a sense of spirit. They always wanted me forever. They wanted eternity or something. And I'd say, no, 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 no. I, I live a day at a time, and I'd have to pick up my backpack and go, always. But I knew they had something I was missing. And... um. But I couldn't commit. I couldn't commit to anybody or anything. And finally the, uh, um, commune tapped me on the shoulder and said, you gotta go. And I hated that. I hated getting found out. I hated being one minute overdue at your house. I hated not being needed or I just, I, my instinct was sleeping, you know, and it tapped me on the shoulder and I, I ended up sticking my thumb out and me and the dog they gave me. And, um, so me and Tar Baby headed back to Colorado and, um, you know, I, I did a lot of that kind of behavior by myself or with you or, you know, I thought I was so free. I mean, I I marched on Washington for freedom. I went to all the peace rallies. I, you know, I went to the moratoriums. saying you know, if there was a cause, I had to feel like I was a part of it. But I was there to get high. I, I really um, was more interested in what you were drinking and what you were taking than the purpose of why we were really there other than freedom. You know, freedom. I thought the less I had encumbering me in life, uh it was fr- I was free. And uh, I was a prisoner of alcoholism. I had no idea. None. Um, I ended up back with my mother and father. My mother said I could stay there as long as I didn't take any drugs in the house. And so I went into the taverns in that small town in Mount Vernon, Iowa and drank. And I was depressed and I knew something was deeply wrong with me. I knew. I hit my knees in my little room that I grew up in, and I said, you know, God, I don't know what's wrong with me, but help me. Um, And my help came in the form of somebody who said they'd take care of me, and that was my next answer, because I was awfully tired of taking care of myself. My dad and I couldn't even ride in the same car at the same time. That was the Thanksgiving. My parents and my family, when we went to my grandmother's house, I sat with the children at the card tables in the other room, because they were afraid of how I was going to act, or what I was going to say. Um, uh, they didn't know alcoholism. They didn't know it. And, you know, I'm so grateful that um, my uh, grandmothers and my one grandfather got to see me sober before they uh, passed on. Um, I'm so grateful for that. Um, And that my parents get to sleep at night because of you. Um, I'm overpaid. You know, really, when I think about it, You know, it's not a big deal to answer the phone and talk to a newcomer at one in the morning. It's not a big deal to give you a ride. It's not a big deal to go share at a prison. It's not a big deal to get on a plane and come here and be with you and be treated really, really well. You know, it's not a big deal to say yes to Alcoholics Anonymous. I am overpaid. And I hope I always remember that debt that I have because it keeps it fresh in my mind. I do not want to go back to that broken-spirited shell of a human being that walked in here on August 20th, 1975. I do not. I want to remember it. And, um, you know, I I ended up at Northern Wisconsin Organic Farm. That was <laughs> that was their answer to helping me. Um, now, I didn't have a functioning gallbladder. I had pancreatitis. And we didn't know any of this. So they just took away my cigarettes. They took away my alcohol. And they gave me organic pot to smoke. And so I smoked organic pot. I did all this Adele Davis organic eating. We were in Northern Wisconsin. We would come into Minneapolis to the to the West Bank, and we would buy all our organic food at this co-op, and we would drive back to this organic farm with organic maple trees that we tapped in the winter. It was a lot of work. And these organic honeybees, and that was a lot of work. And this fifty head of organic sheep that you know what they make, that was a lot of work. And I painted mailboxes, and I smoked my organic pot, and I read my Mother Earth news, and and I still wasn't getting better. And they took me in emergency, and they had to run a couple of tests. And the doctor said to me, your gallbladder isn't functioning, you have pancreatitis, do you abuse drugs or alcohol? And I said, I'm organic. And that was <laughs> as honest as I could be. And he was the first one, looking back, that spotted something about me. Um, I was real sick. And so I went through some surgery, and I got better. and. Um, I remember the second snowfall and I remember sitting there smoking my organic pot and rocking in my chair and reading my mother with news and, and he was across the room with that five string banjo and he kept missing that fifth string and he would start the record over with Pete Seeger, how to, how to play the banjo with Pete Seeger, you know, and he started over and I didn't have a TV for diversion. There was no diversion. um, you know, and I just flew out of that chair and I went into town, their town, it was a general store, Connorsville and I topped down my quarters and got some cheap wine and came home and I felt better. And I got roaring drunk, and and I remember he woke up at four in the morning, and I'm having me and the dog and the cat are having a great time. We're partying, you know. I'm, oh, I've got relief going finally, and you gave me that look, you know that that look we've all seen that look, and you Alanons have given that look, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. I always read it as a judgment, but what it really was was, you know, boy, they don't understand us at all, you know, and uh confusion and and compassion and. But I saw that look at him, so, I, you know, I read it, of course, as a judgment, because I'm a rebel, and and my head said, loud and clear, alcohol is more fun than you. And it took me a while to get rid of them. Actually, I was blackballed from that organic community up there, and I was left alone with my 50 head of sheep and my cheap wine, and my friend Clarence, the farmer who would bring the hard stuff, and he would bring his tractor because he had his license pulled for too many DWIs, so he was on the tractor, and... We go get the hard stuff and come at night, and we drink. And then I think his wife went to al and took away the keys to the tractor, and then I was really alone. And and I had this half acre of organic marijuana that I was pruning and having a good time with all summer long, and I harvested it and put it in hefty bags by horseback. It took me three days. And I went into town to this 45 miles into Menominee to turn this big dope deal so I could get out of town because winter's coming, and ice it was so cold that winter. I said, never again, never again. And um, I forgot the dope. And it was... Um, there happened to be a carnival in town, so, of course, I wanted to be a gypsy. And I went over there, and they happened to have a job opening. And I happened to qualify, because I drank like they drank. I mean, that was my interview, was sitting there with a bottle of tequila. And uh, so I packed up my pot and some clothing and uh, stuck my dog in there. And I had this big old car named Cheshire. See, you have to name these cars. They last longer. And uh bald tires, big sun painted on the hood. I should have written, bust me on the side, you know, but... uh we joined the carnival, and I ran the shooting gallery, and I left. I left the house full of my mother's antique furniture. Those 50 had a sheep, that horse, my cat. I, you know, I am just looking ahead because, you know, tough. You know, it, it it really just hurt too much to turn around and look behind me. I didn't want to see the disappointment one more time in anybody's face. I just, you know, who needs them? And I ended up... Somewhere in Arkansas calling my mother, telling her what I had done, and then my mother cries. I can't talk to my dad, and now my mother cries. My mother had to drive from Eastern Iowa up to northern Wisconsin to take care of all of that stuff. But I'm not hurting anybody but myself. And that's my selfish, self-centered, self-obsessed, alcoholic cry. Leave me alone. I'm not hurting anybody but me. Crap. That's crap. When an alcoholic takes a drink, the statistics are, which I think it's light, that ten other people are affected. And I believe that there's a lot more than 10 other people. But I'm not hurting anybody but myself. Because I am selfish. I am prideful. I am empty. And the only thing that will still work for me is alcohol. Um, I had a list a mile long of why I drank like I did and why I did what I did. And if you ask me about it, I'd tell you. Um, and these guys drank hard and heavy. And I had the pot and they had the uppers and we were instant friends. And, and my nice dog started to bite people even. I mean, we just got... Mouth slipped to the side. Cowboy boots came on. Tequila was right there in my shooting gallery, you know. And uh, you know, I just, I just ripped. I just ripped through those towns. And <laughs> oh boy, if you're keeping track of my life, there's amends that have to be made <laughs> along the way here. And I guess I would have maybe acted better if I would have known. I don't know, but <laughs> I, you know, the way I made amends for that carnival, it's it's kind of a serendipitous thing. If you stay sober long enough, things present themselves. Um, you know I know a lot of people have a hard time making amends to dead dead people you know and and what what's necessary to be done is is sponsors have walked me through some of that that and um and healing has happened with the amends but um the carnival was one way I, I just kind of blew it out of my mind, and I was sober about five years, and I'm standing at one of our meetings one night, and this nun comes up to me that I know that's been sober a little while, and she said, "You know I need a new sponsor, would you be my sponsor and i went. This is a nun asking me to be her sponsor. Oh sure, glad to. You know, I thought, what's this all about? And um and I just gave this nun a seventeen year birthday cake last Wednesday. And um she's just been an incredible um mate along this road in, in the sponsor baby relationship and spiritual tools that she's given me and that she says I've given her and, and I, I don't even I think she's helped me a lot more and I've helped her but. See, she was principal of this school um, for many years, and when she asked me to sponsor her, she was principal of this school. And my son at that time had just kind of been kicked out of kindergarten at another place, so I sent him over to her, and um, so he started kindergarten at St. Augustine's. And guess what they have every spring? A school carnival. And we have so many service hours we have to do as as a, as a you know parent of a child going to school, so. I would work this school carnival and I was there maybe a couple of years before I went, well gee, maybe I could make some amends here. Um since it was mostly children I ripped off, um, I thought we'd well, we'll buy some ride tickets for the kids. So I started buying ride tickets for the kids and every year that little group that gathers around me as I go out to the ride booth, there she is, she now gets bigger, you know. <laughs> There's Wesley's mom, she's gonna buy us tickets, come on, you know, and it's like they've gotten bigger and and I've got one more year. he graduates from eighth grade this year, so one more year I don't know if there's gonna be twenty or thirty of them this year, but I'm probably gonna you know lay a C note down there and, and buy some ride tickets and maybe that amends'll be made I don't know, but um you know there's ways that that life affords you to to make amends to clean out clean yourself out to clear away the uh the past um uh, so that there could be more room for the new and the new includes you and the new includes God, and the new includes um just New awarenesses, which is so exciting um uh, I know if you knew I'm probably losing you, so that's okay. <laughs> but let me just say one thing if you' knew: make your feet your friend don't make your head your friend, and you know because your feet will get you to your sponsor's house, your feet will get you to a meeting. if you watch your feet, they'll get you out of bed to your job, you know they'll walk by the liquor store, watch those feet, but put your mind in the trunk of your car for about a year, just lock it in the trunk of your car. You know, I, I don't care if you go to a foot masseuse, you know, pedicure your toes, you know, love them. But your feet will get you where you need to go, but your head will not. So go back to sleep now. So, um, but I, I had, um, I got busted for drugs with this carnival, and I think I got pointed out. I think somebody said, we're tired of her act. You know, she started a fight in the midway in Mon- Monroeville, and, uh, you know, we get closed down early, and she's just trouble. And so, you know. I've got a tip for you, you know, Bogalusa, Louisiana Parish. And um, so I woke up to shotguns that morning in my belly, and they wouldn't let me get dressed, and they searched the room, and they found enough possession and sales, so it was a felony. And so I went to jail. My dog went to jail. My new friend went to jail, and he had a pet skunk, so the skunk went to jail. We all went to jail, and there I am, the carnival leaves town. I'm in maximum security in Bogalusa, Louisiana. That was not a chapter in the book I was writing. Um, I really went a little crazy. Um, I managed to find somebody making his own very bad apple wine, but I managed to get drunk in jail. And I had been in there about a week before they slapped some handcuffs on, took me to this uh, building and, you know, threw me out of the car and put me in. There was my father. He had uh, come into town and found out what had happened to me. I called my brother-in-law. I wasn't going to call my father. My one phone call was to my brother-in-law. And uh, he had called my father. My father had found me and taken a plane, taken a bus, rented a car, whatever, and came and and hired this lawyer. And I sat there in handcuffs, a disheveled mess, because I didn't bathe in there either because the one time I took a shower, they all watched. And it was just, you know, one of those, I kind of blocked it all out of my memory. But I remember sitting there next to my dad that day and, um, we were inches away from each other, shoulder to shoulder, sitting in these chairs looking at this attorney behind this big desk. And I don't remember much about that day other than nobody said, gee, I'm sorry, or nobody said, you're an alcoholic, or nobody said, what's wrong with you? Or I asked my dad, uh, at the 50th anniversary, we had a really nice talk when I went home. And I said, Dad, you know, that day is a day I really, I need some clarification on. You know, what did I say that day? He said, you told me you weren't guilty. It wasn't your fault. <laughs> I was like, it's not my fault. I've got a list of my long as to why I act the way I act. And I was arrogant and prideful, and my father and I didn't hug each other that day. And, you know, he didn't say, you know, your mother and I worry about you. And uh it was just he hired this guy to try to get me out of this jackpot. And um, it didn't work, and I ended up paying a big fine, but I did not do more than 31 days, and I ended up uh, with a felony in my record, and I ended up finding New Orleans, and I had to pay this fine, and I danced on Bourbon Street, and I drank on Bourbon Street, and I passed out on Bourbon Street, and I I fell in love with the French Quarter, and I um, met some people there that were just like me, that drank just like me, that didn't judge my drinking, that drank harder and heavier than me, and and I became a bartender, and we all watched out for each other, and and I would have two- and three-day blackouts, and, uh, you know, I would come, too, at at the same bar. And they would have taken care of me. My purse would have been put on the other side of the bar. I would have a tab. Because you came to my bar, you had a tab, and I took care of you. And, uh, or a cab driver would find me, and he'd say, you know, I took you home the other day. You owe me a fare. Uh, you were, you know, kind of wedged between a car and the curb. And so we all kind of took care of each other. And, and um this guy that I had gotten busted with, we were in this thing now forever, you know, we hated each other. We were in love for two weeks and hated each other for two years and and um I wanna tell you about this relationship because I didn't grow up with this kind of behavior, you know. Um he was a heroin addict, which I never understood. Um you know, anybody face down going, Let's party was not part of my repertoire. I like to move fast and go and drink tequila and ride Harleys and you know, shake my fists and and peace sign in one and finger in the other and, you know, I could never decide what I was going to do. Am I going to love you or slug you or, you know, play George Jones? If I was drinking gin and playing George Jones, they all left, you know, man. They didn't want to be with me and, and, but yeah, we were all alcoholics in this and so we seemed to forgive each other and we seemed to kind of take care of each other and, and, um, so this guy, uh, my parents came and found me, um, and my mother was the only one talking to me because my father couldn't. He had that set look in his face, and that jaw was tight, and he would catch me out of the corner of his eye, and I'd catch him out of the corner of my eye, and there was such pain between me and Dad. There was never any physical abuse, but there was so much pain between me and Dad. And, um, you know, I had a new black eye that day, and, uh yeah, you know, that's the way we live. We live with night fights and insanity, and that skunk, and the snake was loose, and, You know, the dog got killed by a car, and I I was sitting in a hotel with my dead dog. I couldn't believe this dog was dead, and, you know, all my animals used to bite the dust. My turtles would crawl through my cocaine, and I'd find them stiff, you know, and, you know, you didn't want to hang around me, because you weren't sure, you know, if you were going to come to the next day or not, and, um, but that's the way my parents found daughter number two, you know, and um, he wasn't nice to me in front of my parents, and he called me lots of names, and and I went and sat down at the mousetrap bar and ordered my rock glass full of gold. And I drank it, and I drank more, and I drank more, and I drank more, and it didn't put out the fire when they went home that day. And I knew that it was over with me and the family. i It was a day that I remember alcohol not working for me. I needed it to work for me. And I knew if I went home with my mother and wrapped her little sweater around me and laid in the back of that station wagon and went back to Montford in Iowa, and nothing would change. And I didn't know alcoholism. I didn't know alcoholism, and neither did they. And um I uh got worked my way down to Lower Decatur Street. Um I came to once in Florida, I had moved there with people I didn't know. Uh I said, I gotta take care of, better care of myself of my blackouts, and you know, I was beginning to end up way out in the bayou and and I was getting in cars with people I was hitchhiking that were, you know, come back and try to catch me with uh, their shotguns laying in a field of palmetto bushes and when of the sky rained and they left and um I was getting in situations that were getting more and more violent, and I began to not even care. Now um, as was the girl in high school I could be whatever I wanted to be growing up. You know, I tested so that I could be whatever I wanted to be growing up, you know. And by the time I was a senior in high school, it was – I didn't have any aspirations to go develop a cure for cancer or to be of service down in Peru or whatever. I, I wanted to be a truck driver. I mean, I just – my drinking and alcoholism had taken away my dreams one by one by one by one and um but I was free. see, I was free had no attachments, and I was free and in nineteen seventy five um, my friend Michael was shot and killed. a lot of those people I drank with are dead. um Michael had a gun, a policeman shot him, he was shooting at people off my balcony in mardi glad day i um had been fired from my job on Lower Decatur Street, which is not a nice part of the tour section of the French Quarter. You could smell the bathroom as you walk in the front door. It's not a place you and my alcoholic friends wanted to come visit <laughs> and drink with me. And they had fired me for having a bad attitude. And I was uh, partying on Mardi Gras Day with Michael, and, and I was two feet inside the door when I came out of a blackout, and Michael was dead to my left. And, you know, that's seconds in and inches. And I ran to New York because I felt like anybody or anything around me now is just doomed. And And I kept putting myself in situations where maybe it would be over for me because I didn't have the guts to commit suicide. I really didn't even think of that. I just knew it was going to be over soon. And I knew that I wasn't going to hit 25, which I did. And when I hit 25, I was just waiting. I was waiting for it to happen. And I ended up um, coming to California where I first saw the big book in this bar, Barney's Beanery. And... um, This girl was so drunk that they had to call her a taxi to to go to her A&A meeting, and we all took our drinks and cheered her on out the door, you know, and her name was Chris Running, and she was going to be my Eskimo to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I had no idea, had no idea. I ended up back in New Orleans, and I couldn't get a job. It seemed like nobody wanted to be with me. Um, I seemed to be the loser of the alcoholic bunch down there, and uh, I met someone going to Hawaii, and I was on my way again back west, and... Uh, I think I had some DTs and scared the guy a little bit, and he left some money on the bar in Barney's Beanery, and I never saw him again. And I ended up on a Harley-Davidson going to Palm Springs. I had been unemployable. I couldn't get – I tried a cocktail waitress. They asked me to go after 10 minutes because I couldn't remember where the drinks went. Um, I was sleeping in – I was sleeping in that girl, Krista. She was moving out, and I was sleeping in her – in her living room, where there was no furniture, and I remember crawling across the floor one night and i sh- and I opened this book that was came to believe it had a little a little uh sprout coming out of the snow. I liked the cover of this book and um and I couldn't go out until it was night because I was paranoid and and I would hide all the way down to the liquor store I would make it to the bar and you know i would, I would have you buy me drinks or whatever and um I ended up going to Palm Springs on a Harley, you know, and I was over 170 pounds, and I wore a red dashiki and a Panama hat, and I had splotches on my face, and and physically I wasn't doing well, um, and um, when we got to this nightclub, these guys left, and I, they were living, I said, I thought we were going to party, and they said, No, nah, we just needed some extra weight, you know, it was windy going through the desert, so we looked around Barney's and found the fattest one, and it was you, thanks very much, and they wore it off on their Harleys, and I immediately met the bar boys, and I went into a blackout, and I don't remember much about that evening except when I came to, I was in an apartment where they were really physically hurting me, and this wasn't a DT, and this really was happening, and my surrender happened that night. It was July 27th, 1975. I stopped screaming. And my pride left, and my fight left, and my survivor my survivor just kicked in because we're all survivors. We all have that little bit of God in us to get us in the doors of AA. Every single one of us. I hold that so dear. And I came to. I was at the bottom of a, a ravine and I had a broken jaw in three places and my nose was broken. And I um. I remember the car door slamming. And I remember I came to. I had had a concussion. And I thought they were coming back, and that survivor kicked in. And I heard a voice, and the voice said, get up, I want to live. And I really believe that God has a window of opportunity, maybe just a minute nanosecond in our life where he gets our attention. And that's our surrender. Hang on to that. Work with the newcomers. You know, see it in their eyes. Let that surrender happen again and again, because I don't ever want to go back. Laying on a ravine. And that's where I I start. That's where I start. It's not any pretty champagne anymore. It's not drinking in Paris. It's not, you know, looking for truth. Um, I start at the bottom of a ravine. Um, So I'm really grateful that I went through what I had to go through to get to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I laid in that hospital, and I was the victim. They caught these guys. The police were there. I was... In front of my name was a word victim, <laughs> and if my broken face could have smiled, I would have smiled, because, yes, I have an identity. <laughs> That's what I was shooting for, victim. And um, I was in there for two weeks, and nobody sent me an airline ticket, and that was God working. Nobody bailed me out, and that was God working. And um, I lived above a liquor store, and I had to go back, because I had to go to court. I had to go back to these doctors, because my face was wired together, and I didn't want to. Looked too bad, so I was afraid, and I was tired. I was tired. And um, this guy that knew the girl from Barney's Beanery felt sorry for me and said I could stay there for a while, and he would buy me red wine, go to work, and I would stick a straw in the red wine, stick a straw through the wires in my mouth where the tooth had been, and I would drink my liquid diet. And alcohol wasn't fun anymore, and alcohol wasn't working anymore, and there was no more freedom, and there was no more let's go start over in Phoenix or I was dead. It was over. And I called my mother because he said, you got to go. You're depressing me. <laughs> the tap on the shoulder again. And um, I called my mother, and I had this broken jaw, and I could hardly talk to her. And I said, Mom, I need some help. I need some money. I need, I need to, to stay here. And she said, Sharon. And my mother had gotten this panic phone call from someone in the emergency room, and they had told her what had happened to me, but they didn't tell her where I was. So it took my sister in New York and my mother in Iowa two days of making phone calls to find me. And to find out I was going to be okay. And when I called my mother on August 20th and I asked her for some money and some help, my mother said, word of life. She said, Sharon, I can't help you anymore. You better go to the Salvation Army. And if she would have sent $20, you'd have another speaker. And I know that in my heart. And I called a number that was sitting in front of me, and it was that girl, Chris. The girl that had been in the bar, the girl that we had to call a cab to go to her A&A meeting. And I called Chris because she was always nice to me because she had let me sleep on her floor once. And Chris said she recognized alcoholism because she was one of us. She wasn't sober that day, but she got me to someone who was. And I had no idea that the miracle of coming to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous was just beginning to work in my life that day. I had no idea because she gave me this woman named Suzanne, and she threatened not to give me the phone number unless I called, and so she kind of baited me. She was really, she was good with me. She was like me. And I called this woman named Suzanne, and I had to talk like this. You know, Suzanne, I'm sure, she said, I didn't know what I had on the phone, but she said to me, put down your drink and put down your joint. And I thought, how does she know I have both? (laughs) Instantly read my mail, and what happened was, um, She said, go sit by the steps, and these girls are going to come get you. And and so I sat by the steps and waited for these girls, and these beautiful girls got out of this car, California blondes, big teeth, big eyes. They started clean, pretty, you know, and I said, no, 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 no. (laughs) But my body got up and went with them because I had no other answers. And I sat in the back of their car, and it was a Volkswagen, and you couldn't roll down the windows. It was August 20th. It was hot. I was detoxing. I don't know when the last bath I took was. Water began to hurt. That's all I remember. You know, it didn't. It wasn't important anymore. My friend Marianne, who's got 25 years in our group, said, I saw you at Ohio Street one night and the light was on your hair and I nudged my friend Pat and said, look, maybe sharon will make it. She washed her hair. <laughs> I had no idea that that's how I came to you. No idea. Um, everything about who I am today is a direct result of my surrender and the love of the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And a God that came into my life again. Um, I ended up at this meeting at this church, and I thought, "Oh God, here we go. They're going to have to, you know, want me forever, and they're going to, you know, they're going to make me sit in the kitchen because I look so bad." And um, you know, this man standing at the door. I liked your greeters tonight. I really appreciate that. Um, he was standing at the door. He was the secretary of the meeting. He had out a tie. He looked nice. He was handsome. He stuck out his hand, and I thought he was going to put me in the kitchen behind him. And you know, oh my God, you can't come in here looking like that. You know, that's what I—that's what my head said, walking up to the door. And what the man did was take away all my defences by saying one word, and the word was welcome. And um, it means so much, it means so much to be welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I was lost and frightened, and I had no idea where I was coming. They sat me in front. I don't know how they knew I was new. I had no idea. <laughs> you can smell me at the door. Oh, There's a newcomer in the room tonight, you know. I think in the last number of years, I mean, luckily, we've had a lot of places where people get to go and detox and take care of themselves. And they come a day, and they smell nice. They look nice. So you can't tell. and couple of months ago but i think that's changing too we're going to start seeing a few more seizures in the meetings my friend is carrying his wooden spoon around ready to go you know and we're going to actually get 12 step calls again instead of you know insomniacs and uh so i think it's the tide is turning again but but you know when i alcoholics anonymous it's um the the joy that was was that when i came to you you know i looked like an alcoholic i smelled like an alcoholic and you were happy you know (laughs) look at her maybe she'll make it you know um And and a couple months ago, a baby of mine—we had to meet the Wednesday night meeting, which is a big meeting. We have all the home groups meet on Wednesday nights. It's it's 1,100 people. It's a great meeting. Um, It's run very well. But she said, "Oh my God, somebody over there's been drinking!" You know, it's like. Hello, this is Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. I said, let's go over and talk to him. But she was frightened. She hadn't had that experience, you know. I got sober in 75, and I know there's some people here that that have some time. And and I had real 12-step calls. I ended up in CD Hotels in Inglewood with the woman with the black eye, and the guy passed out next to her, and I drug her off to meeting. And I know she came to with a big book in literature going, what have I done, you know. But I stayed sober. It was so good for me. I was so grateful to be a B on the list because I got called quickly it was before computers they just went through the rolodex you know and i think we're going to get to see that again so hang on it's going to get exciting again and um and uh, you know when i i came to you i got know i had this marriage jaw so i couldn't talk the first three months i was here so i had to learn to listen it was really a blessing in disguise and and people would call me kid a lot and i had no money and no place to stay and so they gave me a sleeping bag and they moved me out of the liquor store um yeah, me and my second edition big book that I gave this guy my last quarter for, because I don't want to owe you anything because I'm a scorekeeper, you know, and I paid him back a quarter about every other week. He said, you were the only one who ever paid me back for a big book my whole term. But I do not want to owe you anything, and people give me rides or money or, or clothes out of their closet, you know, and, and I would write it down. I had this little spiral notebook, and one night this man named Chuck, who died with 32 years of sobriety last year, um, wonderful man, gentle, gentle man, so what are you doing? And um, so I, I broke broken jail and tried to talk to him and show him what I was doing and who I had to pay back for this and that. And he said, no, 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 kid. I'm going to call my kid a lot. Right. Yeah, but he was a nice man, so I didn't tell him what I thought of him. And um, he said, someday you're going to have a car and you'll be able to give somebody a ride to a meeting. Someday you're going to have a little job and you can slip 10 bucks into that person's purse when they need it. You'll be able to buy groceries and leave it by somebody's door. You might even clean out your closet and have some extra clothes that a newcomer could use. Pass it along. That's the way we want to be paid back. So get rid of that little book. And um, I didn't know what happened to me. I mean, it's looking back now. Was he gave me back a big piece of my dignity? And it was very loving, kind ways that people in Alcoholics Anonymous treated me like that. Um, I remember the first time I told a lie. And it was to my friend Ramon. Um, Ramon. He couldn't speak, he was Mexican, but he couldn't speak Spanish, he couldn't speak English. We didn't know what he would say. And, but he was real spiritual, but he loved him. Whatever he said, we all went, yeah, you know. It was, uh, and he just had a way of looking right through you, you know. And he, he said this thing to me one night, and I complimented my watch. And, and I said, oh, yeah, my grandfather gave that to me. And it was a lie, my grandfather Wesley. and Because um, I, I was too drunk to go say goodbye to my grandfather Wesley when he was dying in the hospital. So I always made up this lie about this watch that he had given it to me. And I told that to Ramon, and I walked away, and I went, light went on. That's a lie. Oh, well. He doesn't know. He did not have to know. Not everybody needs everything about me. As I'm walking around the room once, I go, pie Ramon, again, twice. Well, maybe I should tell him. No, he doesn't care. What does he care? Work his own program. You know, as I'm going around the room, my head's yakety-yakety-yak. I don't know, maybe the fourth time I stopped, and I said, Ramon, you know what, you know, before I could say anything, he said, Yeah, I know it was a lie. You know, was like, <laughs> <laughs> he said, It's okay, I love you anyway. And I was it's okay. You know, you came back and you talked to me about it and and that was it was like, Oh my god, I can't start my day over at eleven o'clock. I don't have to wake up with a brain tumor and you know, I called my sponsor once when I had the headache and I was a food waitress. They wouldn't let me bartender, Oh my god, I had the worst attitude until the Queen Alan showed me how to do this. <laughs> So just give them one of these and hot coffee and shut up when they ask you how you are. Don't tell them. They don't want to know. They'll bring them down. They're a waitress. Give them service. But people in AA didn't want to sit in my station anymore. It was so bad, you know. So I did this, and the tips got better. So it was really great. But, you know, what happened was, um, you know, I learned, I learned how to change my behavior before I could change my thinking, thank God. And uh, that's where the freedom comes for me. I don't have to listen to this. And I called my sponsor with my brain tumor that morning. First of all, do not call your sponsor at 6 a.m. to whine. Not a good idea. Especially Janet. She wasn't a morning person. She was not a morning person. And I called her, and I told her I had this brain tumor, and I'm going to stay home. And she said, you know what? If you die at home in bed, no funeral. But if you die at that coffee shop, work in your program, we're going to give you a great send-off, lots of flowers, say great things about you. Now go to work, and she hung up on me. And I was like, ooh, she made me so mad. I went out and I was a perfect member of AA that day just to prove her wrong. So that rebel worked kind of for me. I've learned to let the rebel work for me. It's a good motivator in my life. A couple of years ago, I called my older sister, the Mensa, the brilliant one, you know, the one I had to follow in school that was like, she read so I didn't read. Who hurts? I hurt, you know. I started reading Shakespeare in my sobriety, you know, cause I hadn't read any of that, you know, Huck Finn, you know, because she read. I wasn't going to read. You know, I got the call her a couple of years ago. I said, Nancy, thank you for making me competitive. It has helped me in my life. Um, I just don't put my fists up anymore, you know. But I have a competitive spirit that is that is a motivator. That is a wonderful thing for me when I use it as part of my character and it doesn't become selfish and part of my defect. You know, I'm basically the same person I was when I was born. There is everything in me that I need to get by in life in a very, very wonderful fashion. Um, I just have to know how to work my program to clean out the crap so I can sort the good from the bad because I think I have my head figured out, and they change clothes in the middle of the night, so I don't even try. I don't even try. My feet are still pedicured. I get a massage every other week, and I make sure she works on my feet. I love my feet. My feet are still my friend, and there's many times I have to lock my head in the trunk of my car and just show up and be of service and be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, whether you're looking or not. I'm an example of AA whether they know it or not. I was on going. I used to take the freeway to work. I don't do that anymore. I don't need to. I don't know why I ever did. Test my serenity, I think. Um, but driving is one area I had to really um, surrender. And uh, something about a steering wheel in my hand gave me a sense of false power. And uh, I was on my way to work. I had had a great morning. I had walked with my dog. I was feeling really good. And this uh, little old lady cuts me off. She's in something like a Valiant or something. I don't even make them anymore. And, you know, she had her little blue hair on, and it was a hot summer day, and she was, uh, you know, listening to K-Joy, which is uh, like elevator music, you know. she's kind of singing along, and she cut me off. Who does she think she is? So I am like, you know, I give her the look, and then I give everybody the look on the freeway. Get out of my way, I give you the look. You're in my way, I give you the look. You know, my spiritual tools are gone. I am like into self. And I get to my off-ramp, I'm sweating, my suit is wrinkled, you know, I'm, forget what I just read in my daily reflections, you know, that's out the window. I'm the revenge now, and I get to my off-ramp, and who's ahead of me? The little old lady, in her valiant, not one little blue hair out of place, singing and whistling to her little KJ still. I, I, I laughed. I burst into laughter, because it was such a wonderful lesson. And there's so many ways through the forest. There's just so many ways. You've tread a path for me, and you've said, this is the way. These are the 12 steps. This is the path. This is the easy way. Now, there's brambles over there. Go get hung up for a while, but, you know, please stay within shouting distance, or we'll never find you again. Um, I want to stay smack in the middle of this thing in Alcoholics Anonymous, because every day I'm sober, every day I'm sober, I have more of an understanding of life and that God loves me and that I'm one of God's kids, and that, yes, there is work to be done, but it's just a hallway. For God's sake, quit whining about being in the hallway. Because when the new door opens, it's a beautiful view you've never seen before. Enjoy growth. Enjoy the hallway. Ask somebody else, why are you in the hallway? Why are you in pain? Take your blinders off a while. Thank God. In my mansion of life, there have been so many beautiful views, and I just keep going through it. God keeps leading me through it, and the door always opens if I stay sober. Always to a more beautiful view. And that's the freedom, that inside I just keep t- going deeper and fuller and better and higher. And, you know, I remember when my sponsor, when I got a year sobriety, I drew her a picture. And I wrote this thing, when you climb to the top of the mountain at the top of the world, don't look down, grow wings. You know, and, and I learned how to trust. I had done that third step with her. I thought I was gay after the third step because she hugged me for a long time and it felt good. And then I made this decision, I must be gay. That was my first third step. <laughs> I was not all here for a long time. She said let's don't make any major decisions in our first year so I worked on my inventory and I trusted her with it finally, finally, because my friend Pat, who had eight days less than me, came in and stole my thunder in this group. I've been in the same group since I got sober. And she came in her husband's dying of cancer. They had to push her through the steps. She had to make her amends because, you know, she just had to. Plus she looked nicer than me. She had a job. She smelled nicer. The old time I was wanted to work with her, I was working with people in their first year at various stages of insanity, you know. I didn't know any better, but they were hoping I was gonna make it, but they were hoping they didn't have to get too involved, I can tell you that much. And, and so what happened was Pat had done her inventory way before me. And I would think, you know, that wine looks awful good over there on that table next door, or oh, I, I deserve a little relief. And then Pat would pop in my mind, No, then you'll have less time than Pat. You know. That kept me sober for a while, but it seemed like every time they read Chapter 5, she would look at me, thin little blue lips, I've done my inventory, I know you haven't done your inventory, you know, oh, i so mad, and finally, a week before my first birthday, I did my fifth step with my sponsor. And I sat in that seat, waiting in that meeting for her to turn around and look at me, and I just smiled at her. And what happened was, I just kind of owned my seat a little bit more in Alcoholics Anonymous from doing my first fifth step. And I've done a lot of fifth steps. I've had three sponsors in my 22 and a half years. I, my first one, I don't know where she is. God bless her. Yeah, she's sponsored me for well over four years. She took me from a little lost girl into the beginnings of a life. Um, She, uh, you know, my second sponsor was a woman named Jenny, who was marvelous in helping me learn how to become a woman, and learn how to own that part of me, and learn how to not be afraid of it, and to know I could be enough as a woman. See, a lot of those things I used to scoff at, I never thought I could do. I never thought I was enough, and Jenny got me to that point, because I was able to be vulnerable with her, and she was so womanly, and so wise, and... And she was so to the point with me, and she's back now in our group with two years of sobriety uh, because she had started smoking pot, and uh, she had to give up her time, and then she got some time, and then she drank, and she had a hard time, and two years of sobriety, and finally the light is on again. Finally. She's so lucky to be back, but the light wasn't on for a couple of years, and finally I saw it go back on. Finally. So I was so happy to see that for her, and... um, you know, I met this man and, and um well he was a boy, I was a girl and he had six more months than me and we got together, boy meets girl in AA campus. Um, we got married, we got engaged, we were engaged for a year, we got married, um it was an AA wedding, my father came out, my mother came out, my sisters came out, they went to an AA meeting, um, they would whisper about me at home sharing an AA, you know, and say very loud and um now I go home, I'm home a couple of days starting to, you know, sit in one chair, go sit in the other chair. They go, is it time to go to a meeting? I mean, they really are happy that they know where to send me to get calm. You guys have this calming effect on me. And, you know, now my dad walks down the street and goes, you know, my daughter went to AA in New Zealand, took her there. She went to New Zealand. And it's like, Dad, there's anonymity, you know. It's like something called anonymity, you know, because my friends will come up to me at class reunions and say, your father is, still, you know, it's like, Great, you know, but they've seen me through it. They've seen me through it. I am an example of Alcoholics Anonymous to them. Um, And um, Janet had me go home in a year of sobriety and start the amends with my father. And it was the beginning. And we stood by the car, and I put my bags in, and we're going home. And I know I've been there a week, and I hadn't done it. And um, I knew she was going to (laughs) ask. She never forgets. They go to sponsor school. Somehow they take these notes. I don't know. They know how to ask for more when you're willing, too. And I stood by the car, and I looked at my feet, and there was we were standing in sand, and I remember making holes in the sand with my toes. I remember saying to my father what I needed to say about making the amends of this program and starting to to lead a different life, and that I was very sorry if I had hurt him. And I know I had said sorry a lot of times, and I was hoping to act differently and become a better member of this family. And some sort of speech I had written out that we had talked about, and um, my dad said, I just always wanted you to have a good life and be happy, and that was it. There were no angels that sang, there was no earthquake that happened, there was no big hugging and crying and healing, but it was said. And I got in the car and I came home and she said, did you do it? And I said, yes. And it was a real big thing for me. And so when he came out to the wedding and he saw a of you and he went to a meeting, he said, Sharon, look at your life, you got it made. And I thought, God, Dad's giving me approval here. He said, if you think about doing what you're doing before, think twice. And, and I had already had some of my own approval now by working the steps. Working the steps has given me worth. Um, my first beat was Beacon's Moving Van because it was there, and I thought it would make my sponsor mad because she embarrassed me in front of some newcomers I was talking to with all of my prophetic advice at six months of sobriety, you know, and she embarrassed me, and, and so I picked my higher power, which is Beacon's Moving Van, and I got off the plane today, and there's a Beacon storage right over there, and I saw that, and I just went, oh, good, God is here. <laughs> My son and I were lost up in the Arrowhead a couple of weeks ago in fog. You couldn't even see him. We're trying to drive. And right beside us comes this big truck, B-E-K-I-N-S. Oh, we're going to be okay. See, I forget, you know. I forget. I have this, this gratitude meter that forgets. I have to come to Alcoholics Anonymous to be reminded. I need to pray twice a day. I need to see Beacon's Vans. I need people to call me from Colorado going, I saw one today. How are you? You know, I need together. I need us. We can do what I can't do. Um, the sponsor, Jenny, um said to me I was having some problems with my husband and I had finally owned my own character defects, which a lot was anger. <laughs> Guess what? I was angry. I couldn't even... A short circuit came together one night when I hit him on the head with a flashlight. Oh, my God, I'm angry. Let me call my sponsor, you know. I'm angry. And she was, like, excited and he was mad. But, you know, we started working on my defects of character. And and um, she said, you know, what about your relationship with your dad? I said, what does it have to do with my marriage? You know how they do. They pull out something totally different. She said... Why don't you call your father up and ask him how much money you owe him? If you could pay him back that money you owe him. I said, I didn't take my inventory about the money with you. How did you know it? Sponsor school. You know, that's where they go. And so I called up my dad and I asked him. And he had been to the wedding, been to a meeting, read the big book, ran a calculator tape, put it on page 79 where it says most alcoholics owe money. And he said to my mother, if I'm out and sharing calls, and she'll get to this part in the book if she stays sober, give her the bottom line, please. I know my dad did that. Because when I called him, he said, it's this much. He didn't even hesitate. And I was a little shocked. I called my sponsor. I had a new resentment. Um, <laughs> she said she didn't care, of course. And what happened was I um, I started, I called my father two days. He accepted my terms. I started sending him a check. And my sponsor wants more for me than I want for myself. Because between me and my sponsor is there. Between me and me is my head. And my sponsor said to me, I want you to put a note with that check to your father. A note about your life. I said, he's got three of the professional children. What does he care about? The drunk In Alcoholics Anonymous in sunny Southern California for, where all the fruits and nuts roll out, as far as he's concerned. She said, very lovingly, do it anyway. Because, uh, you know, I've had sponsors that have pushed me and prodded me and led me and helped me and, you know, shored me up and moved me along when I have resisted. But the point is, is that I have done it. Even if I'm kicking and screaming, even if I don't believe it, my actions have brought me results. And my results have brought me freedom. And I sent my dad that check. On time because she said you are an example of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and I paid attention to that. He got that check for three and three quarter years on time with the note and the note turned into letters and Father's Day cards were easier to buy and I remembered his birthday on time and something had begun to change and I didn't even realize it. The man's steps are so powerful. And what happened was my dad called me between Christmas and New Year's, picked up the phone, dialed the phone, he said, my husband handed me the phone, he said it's your dad, I thought my mom died. My dad never calls me, you know. I said, hello, and he said, Merry Christmas, no more checks. I don't want your money anymore. Your debt is free and clear. And he added the words that made all the difference because of a sponsor that wanted more for me than I wanted for myself. He said, don't stop sending me your notes. And uh, we started on a brand-new relationship because of Alcoholics and I was at that moment. At that moment. Um, now, my dad is 80. And... Um, I go home every 4th of July, that's the time I like to go home and see my family, because I hate 4th of July in Southern California, they have fireworks at dawn, I mean, strange out there, good AA, but they're strange out there, so I go home, and, and a few years ago, my dad had been through some surgeries, and we had had one of those great 4th of Julys with, you know, the perfect parade, and the perfect apple pie, and the watermelon was sweet, and, you know, I felt a part of that family, and We had an AA volleyball game, and uh, then we went to the house, and we did sparklers and perfect fireworks, and, uh, you know, the Milky Way was out. You could see the Milky Way, and the fireflies were doing their thing, and uh, I was sweeping up after the sparklers were all over. My dad walked out to me, and he started sharing with me about his pain with the surgery and how he felt his purpose was waning in life and how hard it was getting older, and I went, my God, my dad is sharing with me. my first thought, because I'm selfish, self-centered alcoholic was, "Oh good, I've been waiting to sponsor you. you know <laughs> Help you in life and um but thank God I am in touch with my my God because my God's head, my God is louder than my head, because the next voice I heard said, "Just shut up and listen." And uh, I did, and my dad has been sharing with me ever since then. So it just gets better. It just gets better. Um, every day. It's my prayer of whatever God, just get me out of the way and let me be of service. Page 77, our purpose is to fit ourselves to be a maximum service to God and the people about us. That's truth. That's what I've looked for my whole life. It's that simple for me. Um, I, in uh, 1984, had a little baby boy. I never thought I could do that. I got to name him Wesley after my grandfather. I got to close that circle. Um I got divorced uh, when my son was a year and a half old, and he—I had been to Al-Anon before. Thank God, it saved the marriage. I think I had a child because of that. Um, He had a problem being faithful, and even though I didn't really know it, I knew it. And but we hung in there. We we went—I went went to Al-Anon, both of us. We worked on it. I had the baby. Things were really good. I was uh, went back to the church. I was sponsoring this nun, um, and then. um, January of 86, he decided he wanted this newcomer, and uh, he wasn't, didn't want to be married anymore. And he's got 23 years. He stayed sober. Uh, nobody had to get drunk, thank God. But it hurt like hell. I had um, was really happy in my life. I was really had gotten better jobs. I got to retire and have a little 401K going so that I could enjoy my child and and be a mom and a housewife and go to meetings and work with others, and he and left. And I couldn't lay down and be the doormat like I used to be because I, I wasn't that person anymore. I was full of God. I wasn't full of self-loathing. And um, Jenny, uh, my sponsor then, was smoking the pot, and I had to go get a new sponsor. I ended up at Clancy's door, knocking on his door with my baby in the stroller, going something like, I don't think you like me. I don't like you, but I need help. And he said, come in and sit down. And um, thank God he was louder than my head. Get a sponsor louder than your head. Because um, they were across the room one night, seemingly having a very nice, fun Saturday night, and it was date night, and there I was alone again. Feeling sorry for me, and I was doing things like 10 years of sobriety, I was, uh, cutting off all my hair, dyeing it little short white spiky things, and, and, uh, driving my car to Sacramento to go to a meeting and taking newcomers with me and not stopping to let anybody go to the bathroom. It's a four hour trip, you know? Shut up, you know? And every time Bruce Greenson would come on the radio, I'd sob. It was just, you know, but I hung in there. Nobody was gonna get my seat in AA. I was shoplifting, driving my car fast. I was crazy. And my sponsor happened to be there that night when I was walking across the room with two hot cups of coffee to really see how happy those two were in the corner of the room. I was going to throw them on him. And Clancy happened to see where I was going and what I was doing, and he stopped me and he took the coffee out of my hands. He put them on a table. He grabbed me by the shoulders, and he looked in my eyes, and he said, Sharon, you will walk through this with dignity and grace. And, you know, I wasn't ready for that. I was still into revenge, but he added the words louder than my head so that you can be an example to others. And I heard him, and I told on myself. and I had to go make amends to the Broadway for shoplifting. I had to stop driving my car fast. I had, you know, I had to start eating and sleeping and writing an inventory and go get a job and act like a human being again. And what happened was, one year, one month, and 18 days, I walked through the new door into a beautiful view, and I've never looked back. I've never looked back. Now, this girl and I became good friends because she had a little baby boy, and my son wanted to be with his brother. And I started to like her, and I didn't want to like her, but I started to like her. And, um... My sponsor made me take my son over there to be with her kid. And, you know, we've been—I give her a cake every birthday. She gives me a cake at my women's meeting every birthday. And uh, we've been better friends now that they've been divorced a few years. So that's—it I out But uh, you know, she said to me, "I knew I could do it when he left me for her because you had." So it's none of my business why I'm thrown in the fire. My job is to get up and walk and quit feeling sorry for myself and find out why you're in the hallway, too. And he's happy with this al and he had a heart attack when he was 40, 41 years old. And we went to see him in the hospital, and I had, you know, we had made our amends. Things were okay. I have this great guy in my life who's sober 15 years. We had a lot of fun together. He has a story like mine. Our relationship is based on the gratitude of the Spirit, and there's a lot of passion and gratitude. It's an amazing thing. And we don't live together. I've been raising my kid. He's been building a career. I've been building a career. We do a lot of alcoholics anonymous and so we have a great time, but we're very committed. Very committed to each other. Just not ready to get married again. I'm just not. And it's okay. You know, so what happened was um he had this heart attack. We went to see him in the hospital and I was fine with my ex and He was sitting there, and his friend Cindy was there reading him the big book, and he had all these tubes, and and I lost it. And my son was talking to his dad, and he was fine, and I lost it. And what happened was he started to have leg cramps, and he started to panic, and he was having leg cramps, and he wanted to pull the tubes out. And so what I did was I just started to rub out his leg cramps. I just said, be of service here. And a healing came over me, and I wished that man well, and I wished that man everything he ever wanted from life. And I was able to walk away freer that day because you've taught me how to be of service. When I don't know what else to do, be of service. Go find a newcomer. Pick up the phone and see how somebody else is doing. Um, I have a really great life today. I have a really great kid. I've been been at a job for 11 years at a law firm where I walk in and stand toe-to-toe with Harvard-Yale graduates. And they listen to me because you've taught me how to hold my head up and look at people in the eye and feel like I'm God's kid. And I know where the power is. The power is in God. The power is in love. The power is in God with skin on an Alcoholics Anonymous. I need to come here and feel it every night. I need to have contact with a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I get to sponsor a lot of people. I got to go back to New Orleans and make amends to that town. I get to sponsor a girl that used to drink with me. Another girl that we used to drink together from my past in New Orleans went and got me a fully pardoned piece of paper from the state of Louisiana and mailed it to me because she went back to law school in sobriety. So I am a pardoned felon. I don't have to write that down anymore. Freedom is alcoholics anonymous. Freedom is a God that loves me much more than I could ever love myself. Freedom is getting on an airplane and coming to be with you this weekend to feel God with skin on and to see the light in your eyes so that I know one more time, that's just by seconds and inches, that we are the lucky ones. Thank you very much for listening to me.